You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. WikiLeaks is shocked, shocked to learn that there's gambling, or, um, actually, Russian surveillance going on. Advice from Ukraine about influence operations. The Equifax story may have gotten worse. There may have been an earlier breach in March. Software supply chain issues come up in, in a vast back door. Industry notes and the unlucky 13, presented by Johns Hopkins. I'm Dave Fittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 19, 2017. Here's something out of the ordinary. WikiLeaks has posted documents purporting to describe the Russian state surveillance apparatus and some of its operations. This dump, which they're calling Spy Files Russia, has received a very mixed reception, which we'll discuss in a moment. Spy Files Russia's central revelation, if revelation it be, is that Russia conducts mass surveillance and that a company in St. Petersburg, Peter's Service, is a contractor for Russian state security services. The former revelation should come as no surprise to anyone. What the documents purport to show about Peter's Service are perhaps more interesting. The company was established in 1992, initially as a billing solution vendor, it evolved into a significant supplier of mobile telecom software. The story Spy Files Russia tells about Peter's service and Russian intelligence has literary parallels with the things Edward Snowden leaked concerning U.S. activities. Here's why Spy Files Russia has received a standoffishly skeptical reception. WikiLeaks has long looked to many observers like a Russian cat's paw, so why this dump now? Some read it as a refutation of the Russian connection, which may be what Julian Assange's organization intends. Many others, however, see it as dragging a red herring across a path that leads back to Moscow. What better way to deflect such suspicions than by tossing out some anodyne wolf meat? Some lessons on how to wage information operations come from Ukraine, as Germany continues to look for the signs of Russian activity they've long expected as they prepare for Sunday's elections. The Ukrainian observations, reported in The Voice of America, come down to the conclusion that fighting propaganda with propaganda, disinformation with disinformation, is ultimately a mug's game. Students of Russian activity and its hybrid war against Ukraine and its influence operations against the West say that the best answers to these increasingly sophisticated active measures that blend truth with fabrication are fostering a more critical approach to media among the general public while simultaneously encouraging and enabling serious journalism. And, of course, they think blocking Russian television isn't a bad idea either. In other news on state-sponsored cyber operations, North Korean cryptocurrency raids draw more attention as Pyongyang looks for fresh sources of revenue. 
Chinese intelligence services are now being considered possible suspects in the cyber attacks against Scotland's parliament. And from the company's perch in Mountain View, California, a senior Google executive says they think of the U.S. NSA as a nation-state threat actor. You're likely familiar with the notion of adopting a DevOps software development process and the advantages it can provide when it comes to communication and collaboration. But what about security? Mike Kale is chief technology officer at Cybrick, and he makes the case that DevOps should transform into DevSecOps. So I think if you look at the mega trends of digital transformation, cloud migration, uh, the move to containerization, and this this notion of the rise of the developer, and the developers have more power within an organization because the application economy is really what's driving revenue. So developers are incentivized to to deliver features at a much higher velocity, and that's powered by the adoption of DevOps culture and the core tenets of collaboration, automation, measurement, and sharing. And, and meanwhile, security has kind of been left behind uh, or off to the far right. So they, they're still kind of ingrained in manual processes and disparate tools. And what really needs to happen in this cultural transformation is what we're calling shifting left. So how do we bring security into that collaborative DevOps, DevSecOps pipeline and conversation? We can't keep trying to scale out uh, cybersecurity engineering talent and human capital. There's the well-publicized shortage of engineers that's just growing. So then it's taking an automated, orchestrated platform approach to this. So now taking all these disparate tools and powering them with a true automation platform to then free up the security engineers to do higher order work and be much more close to the development lifecycle and the developers themselves. What do you suppose is the driving force behind the need for this shift? Uh, CIOs and CISOs have lost visibility. So as the, the security perimeter has dissipated, and applications have migrated or you know been um, greenfield in the cloud, they've lost visibility around the security controls of that. There's no hardware device that can now protect a cloud application. And so you have to have different newer software uh, constructs to provide that visibility. In conjunction with that, you have hackers attacking your application and infrastructure continuously. And the current view or current way of security is doing periodic tests instead of continuous. So we have to level the playing field against the hackers and hackers only have to get it right once. You know, we as defenders have to be right all and secure all of the time. The only way to really give that assurance is take a continuous approach and try to find uh, vulnerabilities and software defects earlier and earlier in the development lifecycle. And so looking forward in a, in a perfect world, in an ideal world, um, how would you see this playing out? So in an ideal world, there's the cultural transformation, like I talked about, that the security team is collaborating with the, the development and DevOps teams and trying to work towards this common framework of continuous security assurance. You know, to do that, you have to do this testing continuously as well as, you know, correlation and looking at the global threat feeds and, and different stages of the vulnerability. Like if you look at the classic uh, stance of defense in depth, apply that to the SDLC. So looking for defects at the code commit level, at the CI build, and then at the delivery, and correlating all those results, and you know, 
having this measurement of continuous assurance. This is a cultural change, and that's harder than technology. Technology is much easier to be adopted, and it, it, you know it's about uh, changing hearts and minds versus you know here's this new cool technology. That's Mike Kale from Cybrick. We're at the fourth annual Cybersecurity Conference for Executives on the Johns Hopkins campus today. We'll have full coverage later this week, but Anton Dabura, director of the Information Security Institute at the Johns Hopkins University's Whiting School of Engineering, set the day's agenda by reviewing what he calls his unlucky top 13 list. These are in reverse order with a hat tip to David Letterman. Number 13, the announcement in March of the Apache Struts bug's discovery. Number 12, scams and thefts plague new cryptocurrencies. Number 11, Kaspersky security software is booted from U.S. government systems. Number 10, discovery of Apple's questionable use of differential privacy. Number 9, Apple's iPhone 10 with Face ID. Number 8, the U.S. Navy investigated possible cyber causes of the USS McCain collision. Nothing found, but it's interesting to see that cyber forensics are now a routine part of major accident investigations. Number seven, ultrasonic hijacking of Siri and Alexa devices was demonstrated. Number six, Blueborn, a Bluetooth vulnerability, is discovered. Number five, new flaws were found in D-Link routers. Number four, expensive wall Android malware charges users for fake in-app purchases without their knowledge. Number three, bugs are found in German voting software. Number two, Symantec finds that hackers have gained direct access to at least 20 power companies. And the number one item in the Johns Hopkins University unlucky top 13 list, of course, Equifax was breached. The central lesson he draws from these, and which he commends to his conference, is that we need a serious national conversation about a national identity system. Speaking of Tony's number one unlucky 13, the Equifax breach, there are developing reports that Equifax learned of a major breach back in March. The company has said that breach is unrelated to the Apache Struts exploit the company disclosed the week before last. As Bloomberg primly put it, the revelation of a March breach will complicate the company's efforts to explain a series of unusual stock sales by Equifax executives. The U.S. Department of Justice is said to have opened a criminal investigation into the stock sales. It seems clearer that Equifax was aware of the Apache Struts vulnerability and the patch was available for the bug. The credit bureau is seen by some as finally getting a handle on its messaging, but the breach is drawing more lawsuits. And of course, the acknowledgement that there was another earlier breach has caused them further problems. Mandiant, the FireEye unit, is said to have been brought in at the time of the first breach. It's also been engaged to help mop up the second, more recent incident. The compromise of a vast sea cleaner with a back door prompts discussion and concerns about software supply chains. In industry news, Mantech has bought InfoZen for $180 million. ThreatStack has raised a $45 million investment and the U.S. Senate attached an amendment to the Defense Authorization Bill banning Kaspersky products. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He heads up the Academic Center of Excellence in Cybersecurity Research at Lancaster University. Um, Professor, welcome back. Um, I think particularly with larger organizations, sometimes there's a tendency for people to think that the job of cybersecurity belongs to the folks in IT. But um, you want to make the point that it's really more complex than that. Indeed, I think uh, particularly in large organizations, there are uh, cybersecurity teams or uh, IT security or information security teams, and and they they do a great job at at protecting the infrastructure and information in the the organization. Uh, But equally often, other employees in an organization think that it is really their responsibility to deal deal with security. However, uh, it, it is in fact everyone's responsibility. When I sit on my uh, on my computer and an email comes through and I I click on an embedded link, I am implicitly making a security decision. I I am making a judgment, knowingly or unknowingly, that it's safe for me to click on that link. And as someone else sitting in procurement procures some third party service or 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 some hardware, they are implicit making a judgment, and you can. To see this in all our work practices, the the uh, the key thing is that the world is very highly digitally connected. We we bring our devices into our workplaces. We uh, interact with others outside or, our organizations using using computers or uh, uh, other electronic devices. And every time we do something, we are implicitly making at least security risk decisions, if not concrete security choices. Uh, and as a result, the only way in a, in a modern organization which uh, doesn't want to use the model of batting down the uh, you know uh, uh, hatches, so to speak, and keeping everybody out, because that way you would do no business with anyone elsewhere in the world, mm-hmm. then there really is an important need to have a cybersecurity culture. It, it has to be an ingrained practice. Of course, the key challenge is 
how do you actually raise awareness amongst you know various employees in the organization and bring it to the fore that uh, security is everyone's responsibility do you think there's a, a perhaps a, a false sense of security where people think well if i if i click on this link surely the folks at it have tools that will protect me from anything bad happening Yes, I think it's 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 quite interesting to to understand, and I think it's a big research question. And some people have explored these kind of issues as to what are the users' mental models of of security, and how do they perceive uh, particular activities in the in their day to day work? Whether those those mental models of, of security uh, represent the reality? And uh, you're right, people might think that it is that somebody else has uh, thought of that, and hence there is some protection in place. It could also be that they think no harm can come to from it. Because because what valuable data might I have on my computer? But uh, the point is, you know, uh, many a times uh, the mental models do not fully uh, relate to the uh, the networked setting in the organization. And as a result, there is often not a clear understanding on on uh, part of uh, of users that their actions actually have a much, much wider uh, uh, a, a wider impact. And I think we can do a lot in, in communicating better to users, but also making making things easier for them uh, in that regard so that they don't have to understand all these complexities where, when they make decisions, yet they have awareness of the impact of their decisions on the overall security of the organization. All right. Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. 
SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 